Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, back in 1962, one of the greatest of European theologians visited the U.S., Karl Barth. And he was asked during his visit here, what is the essence of all the thousands of pages of theology that you have written? And his answer was quick and succinct. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. In all the thousands of hours that you have lived and worked and related, I hope that you have learned and know that Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. So let's now, let's take a Bible and let's learn more, much more about that love. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. While you're getting there, um, I want to speak my heart around two matters. First of all, I am so appreciative of all the kind words and prayers that were shared a short while ago in this service concerning both Stonehill Church and my calling to lead this church over the past 35 years. Honestly, if I can be candid, I'm I'm recording right now on Friday afternoon, and I won't know what those kind words and prayers are until Sunday morning. But but I'm speaking in confident faith. Because I know my brothers and sisters and I know this church. And what more could I ask for than to lead a church for decades in being committed to the truthfulness of God's word and of making its preaching and teaching the center, the heart of all that we do at this church. What a privilege. Thank you. It is out of God's word that I share a second matter from my heart. This past week has been a week of painful trauma for our country. Painful trauma for the African-American community. Painful trauma for our African-American brothers and sisters in Jesus' church. And it would be wrong for me as a leader, wrong for us as Christians to remain silent about the cruel death of George Floyd and before that, the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. Something is seriously wrong with our country and we desperately need God's intervention. And so I want to lead us in prayer A prayer to the living God using his words from the prophet Amos who wrote, Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Will you join me in prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, you are the mighty God of justice. You are the strong God of righteousness. You alone are the giver and the taker of life. And you alone are the great and final judge. We cry out for justice for George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, their families, others. We cry out for a righteous end to such violence. 
we cry out for a mighty flood of justice and righteous living that will turn things around and, and make this country a haven of freedom and safety for all, regardless of race or color or anything else. And I pray in, in the hope-giving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. May God help all of us to work together to make a difference in these times. So now we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. This text is the last in a five-part series based on 1 Corinthians. In this series, we've been asking ourselves the question, well, why do we need the local church, especially in a virtual age? I mean, right now there's no church, so to speak. So much of church has become a thing of of the past, a thing of memory. You know, at Stonehill Church, it's just a memory, worship in our sanctuary. Just a memory, coffee and bagels in the atrium. Just a memory, Sunday school for all ages. Just a memory, uh, outreach lunches on Sunday afternoons. But we need the local church even more during these virtual times. And using 1 Corinthians, we've seen a variety of reasons why. Let me just mention two. We need the local church during this virtual time to remain gospel-centered. We are at risk in a virtual time of decentering, of shifting away from the gospel. We need the local church to help us learn how to love. An urgent call in a virtual age to love one another. So now today, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, we need the local church, even when there is no church, to immerse us in the six best words of the English language. Let me read the text. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word. So what are the six best words of the English language? They're right here in this text. Let me show you. This text, I I know of no better text in the New Testament outside the Gospels that displays the transforming power of Jesus and his Gospel. I mean, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus time and again demonstrating powerful sign miracles. He just, he just does it. He displays his, his power and his strength. He cleanses lepers. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. What power? Here, in this text, we see that same power of Jesus 
mediated through his gospel into the city of Corinth, transforming lives. You have here a list of ten categories of people who habitually practiced certain kinds of sins. When I say ten, I'm not including the the, the overall heading up at the beginning of verse 9, unrighteous. I'm I'm beginning in the second half of verse 9 and on into into verse 10, where you get ten categories in the original. In the ESV, there are only nine. What a list. Let me just walk you through it. It includes people who practice sexual immorality. In biblical terms, that would be all forms of sexual intimacy outside of marriage between a man and a woman. You have next idolatry. That's uh, all forms of worship and obedience to any God other than the triune God of the Old and the New Testaments, Father, Son, and Spirit. Next, you have adulterers. People who violate the marriage promise, the marriage covenant. Next, you have men who practice homosexuality. And here, the ESV, the translation I'm using, has has combined two words into the one phrase. The two words in the original refer to the the passive and the active partners in same-sex intercourse. Next, you have thieves, those who steal. And then the greedy, those who want more and more and more. And then come drunkards, those who overdo with alcohol. And then come revilers, we would say today, people with a sharp tongue. People who are verbally abusive and cutting. And finally, we have swindlers. People who are after what you want, who will manipulate you in order to have you give them what you have. What a list. And did you notice, by the way, in the list, that the words are all jumbled up? In other words, generally when Paul or other writers give a list like this, there'll be some sort of sequence. Uh, Typically, Paul will, for instance, uh, combine uh, nouns into the categories. So you have a a category of, of sexual sins. You have a category of sins in relation to material things around us, that sort of thing. But not here. It's almost as if Paul is saying, you know, you probably have your ideas about what are the the really big sins, sex, money, pride. But all those kinds of distinctions, you say, all those kinds of distinctions here just fall down. They're all flattened. All sin is equally sinful. And that makes this text especially startling and especially convicting. Because you have, for instance, sitting right alongside one another, you have the sexually immoral and the idolater. You've got the thief and the greedy. Wow. So Paul gives the list, and then in verse 11, along come the six best words of the English language. And such were some of you. I love those words. One translation, to capture more of the the kind of the rhetorical force of what Paul's saying here, one translation puts it in seven words. Some of you once lived that way, 
But I'm going to go with the ESV, and it's six. And such were some of you. And there you have it. In those six words, there you have it. Gospel power. Jesus transforming strength. Such were some of you. People were changed in Corinth. Lives were redirected. Habits were broken up. Replaced, undone. And not because the Corinthians grabbed hold of themselves and decided it was time to become more self-reliant or to, to, to pursue their dream or some sort of American gospel of the day. No, 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 no. They were, they were changed because of Jesus. Paul goes on and he gives three verbs here. Washed, sanctified, justified. And all of them are, are passive verbs. In other words, the Corinthians didn't do this. Jesus did it. The Corinthians were washed. They didn't wash themselves. Jesus' blood cleansed away all the guilt and shame, all the defilement and the the feeling of filthiness of their sin. Cleansed. Sanctified. Again, it's passive. They didn't sanctify themselves. Jesus and the Spirit, did you notice down at the end of verse 11 that it's both Jesus and the Spirit at work here? Jesus and the Spirit set these Corinthian believers apart, put them on their feet, gave them a new calling and a new Lord and a new heart for new obedience, set them apart to become distinctive people. Finally, they were justified. No longer pronounced guilty or or useless or abandoned in their own hearts or by others. No, 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 no. In Christ pronounced accepted, righteous, beloved, forgiven of God. For all of you listening, while you may not fit into all ten categories of the habits listed in verses 9 and 10, If you have trusted Christ, you do fit into all three verbs of verse 11. Washed, sanctified, justified. Those three verbs are yours in Christ. Washed, no longer defiled, no longer filthy with your sin. Sanctified, set apart, no longer captive to the ideas of the people who formerly dragged you down, justified, pronounced, accepted in Jesus. And as a result, and such were some of you. So you say, okay, great, Matt. But what does that have to do with the local church? Why do I need the local church if I have these six best words? Get practical here, Matt. I will do that. These verses don't just give us the six best uh, words of the English language. They also show us why we need the local church. And in two very practical ways. First of all, we need the local church to create in each of us a holy discontent with where we are in light of these six best words. 
And that's what Paul's doing here. The reason he writes verses 9 to 11 is to drive home his argument that, that in verses 1 through 8 that Christians don't take one another to court or in verses 12 to, to, through 20 that Christians don't drop by the local brothel even only occasionally. And it's best. The local church does the same thing that Paul is doing here. It assures you that you, excuse me, <clears throat> that you are both undeservedly loved, such were some of you, and gospel responsible. Gospel responsible, that is to take the gospel into your heart and life and to change, to grow, to become different. Such were some of you. You know, it distresses my heart to hear about churches where the gospel is preached but not lived, where the gospel message is, is cut into a, into a very small version of itself. So it's, it's simply about rescue from hell, which it is about, but not about transformation in this life, which it is also about. Let me tell you about a guy named Hank. Hank was a cranky man, a complaining man, a sour man. People in his church... It just got used to him. One time, Hank got really upset with the people in his church because they sang with, with volume, robustly, and he got so bothered by it that he filed a complaint with the Operational Health and Safety Administration of the federal government. <laughs> Crazy. His pastor mentions Hank in a book that he wrote. And after having described Hank and how he never changed for years and years and years and years and years, his pastor then added, as crazy as it was that Hank did not change, what was even crazier is that people stopped expecting him to change. They just said, that's the way Hank is. May that never be us. May that never be you. It is easy in a virtual world to surround yourself with your own tribe. People who think and act and talk just like you. People who unknowingly confirm you in your sinful patterns. That's why you and I need the church especially in virtual times. We need it with all its different people to create in us a, a holy discontent. A holy discontent that, yes, is tempered by the gospel, that, that uh, is tempered by the reality, I am, I'm accepted in the beloved, I'm justified, I'm sanctified, I'm washed, but, but I want to do more. I want to press on. I want to take that gospel to the next step. Lord, I want to push forward in holiness and in godliness and in change. And we need the people of the local church to help us to, to develop and grow that holy discontent and its, its sanctifying response. 
The second way, the second reason that we need the local church is to inspire us with lives that are being transformed by the gospel behind these six best words. Again, look down at the text. Paul's describing all kinds of lives here marked by sinful patterns and habits that are now changed. Drunkenness, verbal cuts and criticism, sexual immorality, breaking the marriage bond. Paul could look around at those Corinthians and say, that was then and this is now. Such were some of you. You know, people ask me, What are you going to miss most when you step down from being pastor at Stonehill? And there are typically two things that I will say. First, I'll say, this sounds totally crazy, but it's so real. I'll mention that I'm, I'm going to miss the sound, the crunch of the bread as people take communion. I love that sound. Sound of the people of God being fed by the Spirit of God, the love of the Son of God from the Father. I love that sound as, as people do, do something so ordinary, eat a little piece of matzah, but so profound. I will miss that. But the other thing I will say is that, is that I will miss having a ringside seat on the changes that take place in so many lives here at this church. People of Stonehill who are listening right now, this church is filled with sisters and brothers in Christ whose lives are being changed, who are being transformed by the gospel. And you need to hear about those people's struggles and hear about their, their change, even if it's slow change. You need to hear those things, especially in a virtual world. You need to hear about how that person on the, on the screen who is sharing during, a, say, a Zoom small group, you need to hear how that person is being shaped and remade by the gospel. And why? Because it inspires hope and holy discontent and desire in you. You and I need the local church to inspire us with lives that are being changed and to fire up in us a desire to pursue such change through the six best words of the English language and Such were some of you. Let's pray. And such were some of you, oh Father. Please, by your Spirit, bury the gospel and all its motivations deep into our hearts, deeper deeper into the life of this church, deeper into the life of churches all across this country and around the world. Please, that's our desire. That's our cry. In Jesus' name, amen.